Today's scripture reading will be coming from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 15. Again, that is Matthew chapter 19, 1 through 15. For those of us without a Bible, if you look in front of you in the chair below, there is a Bible for you. And if you'll turn to page 773, you will be at the scripture reading. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives from the beginning. It was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the cause of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by man. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and he went away. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Is it on? Ah, good morning. Um, last week, we collected our Operation Christmas Child boxes. We have a little picture I wanted to show you. We collected over 70, I think. No picture? Uh, it, was, it was Junzuk and Daniel giving a thumbs up as they packed the boxes. Maybe next week I can show it. <laughs> but we collected over 70. I think we delivered about 90-something boxes and um, I just wanted to thank you for participating in that, praying over every box. And we're always trying to figure out how we can support our community better, to serve the world better as Christians. And we're very thankful that we had an outlet like OCC uh, be a part of it. Also, I have one more announcement, and that's smaller group leaders were meeting right after service. And so it'll be for about 20 minutes. So if you're a smaller group leader, I'd like to see you right after service today. Before we begin, let's pray. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word. And give us grace that we may clearly understand and f follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life that we may feast on Christ Jesus, the bread of heaven. And aid your servant here in bringing forth the word of God that he may glorify you and aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. He's preaching for the children, but I wanted to thank Pastor Paul for preaching last week. It was awesome, I loved it. I sat and just took notes, pages of notes, and I hope uh, that you are blessed as well, and I hope that you will encourage him to preach more often. <laughs> Excuse me, but I hope he does too. And um, we ended the fourth discourse. 
And so the next two sermons will be on topics in the modern age that are very difficult to talk about. If you have or are struggling with one of these two things in your life, whether it's money or sex, I want you to hear this today, that Jesus' words give life to the disciple. Do not reject them. As you listen to what the Bible says, and specifically and particularly in these two topics, I hope that you will see that what Jesus offers isn't condemnation right now, but to the disciple, he gives a way out. However, in the past, I have been pressured and been given imprudent advice about when I talk about difficult topics to preach on grace. Oh, Pastor Eugene, make sure you're talking about grace. So if we were talking about abortion or homosexuality, there will invariably be people who had suffered and gone through these things. But what we want to hear is we want to skip all the way to the end and say, let's just talk about grace. It's like thinking, I can skip everything and just jump this chasm all the way to that point. It's as if I was down there and I'm going to step over these two steps and jump over this so I could get to the top without stepping on these two. So it's easy, right? It's not a big deal. Just do it. However, what I have seen and what I have witnessed and what I have experienced is that people think we're just jumping a few steps or taking a few steps and skipping them. But as by skipping these few steps, we end up in a place which is not the top. It's a different place. We have not taken the right steps. To jump the chasm, to forget anything about the middle, would be to cheapen grace to a degree where it has no longer any weight. And you might ask, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? What we have done in our age is effectively neuter the power of the gospel by saying sins aren't sins anymore. Meaning the atrocity and offense against God can be ignored. And what we do ultimately is untouchable. What I do is untouchable. And we call this grace. My brothers and sisters, hear this truth. That is not grace. That's a lie. What you do is not untouchable. To do this, you would have to acquire a huge amount of ignorance, like you're gathering ignorance, if that makes sense, to reject reason and to live in some kind of alternate reality that does not reflect any semblance of the truth. As people of God, we take steps through each and every single one of these verses, what the Word shows us, because we see that that's how God leads his people, step by step by step. We can't skip steps because we'll end up in a place that is not the intended place. And I would be lying if I said that these steps will not be difficult. But I pray that the Spirit show you that his way is the better way this morning. The topics aforementioned may be difficult to talk about, but it's not because the Bible isn't clear about them. Marriage and money are two things that I believe most, if not all of us, can agree that we have a hard time saying, yes, God, this too is yours. Submitting our understanding of money and marriage to the word of God is something, and I dare say, something impossible for you to do unless you have the help of the helper, the Holy Spirit. But after the fourth discourse on the characteristics on the kingdom of God, we see Jesus taking on these very two topics, money and marriage. I named the title today, Love and Marriage, which reminded me of the Frank Sinatra song, which is famously sung, in that sitcom with the Bundys. But uh, millennials here will have no idea what I'm talking about. But there was a group, a family called the Bundys, and every time this TV show came on, Frank Sinatra would sing Love and Marriage. 
And this is our idea. Is love and marriage just some kind of fun, you know, whimsical thing? It goes together like a horse and carriage, and we just kind of sing this whimsical song. But it's not. Next week will be on money, and this week, as we have read, is on divorce or marriage. And it's not because Jesus has never addressed these topics before. This very topic today was already addressed on Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not as if Jesus wasn't clear on this. He's the one that said, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, meaning Jesus is saying this now in the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the question that must come up is, why did the Pharisees use this particular question to test and try to stumble Jesus. We've read in the verses today, now when Jesus has finished, saying, finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. This is what we understand to be the region of Perea. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Remember the word test is not a positive thing. Test is to give someone something to have them stumble. And this is how they tested him. They asked this question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Or every cause, if you read the Greek, both make sense. Jesus leaves the area of Galilee and enters the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So once again, many scholars believe that this region is Perea. Perea was a region that was east of the Jordan. But what's notable isn't the name, but who had control over this region? Who had control over Perea? It was Herod the Tetrarch. And if you remember, Herod the Tetrarch had divorced his wife to marry his brother's wife, Herodias, who also happened to be their niece. Game of Thrones had nothing on what was going on here. But while we just passively watch things like God, it was John the Baptist who would go up to them and say, it is not lawful for you to marry her. So one day Salome, Herodias' daughter, dances for Herod and his company, and he promises her anything she wants. Herodias tells her daughter to get John the Baptist's head on a platter. So they cut off his head. That is who is in control of this region right now. So the Pharisees go to Jesus with this very specific and pointed question. Is it lawful to, to divorce one's wife for any cause? Look at the question. Look where they're asking it. And look who they are asking it to. We might wonder, why is it phrased this way? Because this was the popular belief of the time. Leaders, including the Pharisees, were divorcing their wives for a variety of causes and were teaching the people the same thing. There were two primary schools of thought from Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai some decades before, and both taught that divorce was acceptable on the grounds of what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 24. They could divorce their wives for indecency. However, the two camps, Rabbi Hillel and Shammai, they would disagree on what indecency was. Shammai would teach that it would have had to have been a gross indecency, but because gross, the, the term gross is subjective, I mean, what is gross indecency? Doesn't it depend on the person receiving the indecency? So Hillel would teach that almost any indecency can be considered an offense. This included, this included, if your wife was walking down the street and she twirled and a little bit of her skirt 
uh, lifted up and you saw her ankles, then that was indecency. Or if she burned the dinner, that was indecency. Or, and this is in the records, and even um, Josephus records this, if she wasn't as pretty as someone else. That's how far indecency started to become interpreted. I want to tell you this. A lot of people will start taking the Bible, brilliant people, and start taking it and start interpreting it and go in this rabbit hole. This, well, what does this really mean? Let's explore it. Oh, what does this really mean? Let's explore that. Oh, let's go down one more. Let's explore that. And now when we go, the Bible teaches this, people are like, "Mm, you're so old-fashioned. You're so conservative. Let me tell you what the Bible really says. This is exactly the same thing 2,000 years ago. There is no difference from people then and people now who say the same thing. However, when they ask Jesus to test him, Jesus agrees with which camp? Neither camp. Jesus agrees with neither camp. People had only thought that there were two schools of thought that were legitimate. The Republicans and, no, I'm just kidding. They thought they were only two thought, two schools of thought. And any other thought school outside of these schools were just illegitimate. It's either Hillel or Shammai. So they ask Jesus. And when they ask Jesus, he is entirely different. And this is how he answers. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his mother, father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. While they were trying to decipher Deuteronomy chapter 24, Jesus goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 1 to 3. The creative or the creation order. And he specifically cites and if you saw this in the Greek, it's exactly the same thing in the Septuagint. He specifically cites Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and then Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Just back to back. The Creator, God, He made the human race. There is one race, the human race. And he created them by making them male and female. And therefore, because God made them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Or you may have heard in the older English, cleave to his wife, resulting in one flesh. This is what God had intended. And the one flesh in every marriage between male and female is a reenactment of and testimony to. So every marriage is a reenactment of and testimony to what? The very structure of God's creation of the human race. Adam and Eve, not Steve. Not Sally, not whatever it is. There was no other choice. Adam, you don't like Eve. It's not like, "Mm, I'll go with Sally. There was no Sally. It's just Adam and Eve. So, the word he continues in verse 6. So, hosting, it's an inferential particle, meaning, therefore, this is the conclusion. So, The husband and wife are no longer two, but one. But the two becoming one is by whom? Who's doing it? It's God doing this. When a husband and wife are married, it's God's doing. What therefore, Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Don't separate what God has ordained and created and given us order for. By divorcing your spouse, 
you are splitting what God had joined. This is not only against the natural creation order, but rebellion against God. Jesus' view, hearkening back to Genesis, is so far apart from what the two parties were arguing about, it would have shown the Pharisees like we are not even on the same page or level. And to give a little bit of context, people were divorcing their wives mostly through Hillel's understanding. Anytime, any place, anywhere, for any reason. Mm, I don't like him, out. I don't like her, out. And they would just write a certificate of divorce. And this is what was happening. What's interesting is the last books that are written in the Old Testament or Malachi, and the last chronological understanding or the historical event we see happen is from Nehemiah. Both Malachi chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 13 are talking about divorcing and marrying other people from other nations. It's about marriage. It was already being corrupted, and the servants and prophets of God were already speaking out against it. 400 years passes, and it is a mess. Society is a mess. It would have shown the Pharisees this. And they would go, you know what? I'm going to come at you in this intellectual level, in this political level. If you say this, I'm going to get you by this way. If you say this, I'm going to get you this way. This person is going to try to kill you. This person will kill you. This, these people will hate you. All these people are following you. But guess what? Everybody that's following you, Jesus, has had a divorce or is part of a family that has a divorce, there's divorce everywhere, Jesus. Let's see what you have to say. Because if you say something wrong, everybody's going to leave. And if you say something even worse than that, guess what? We have a king that is reigning over in this area who killed your cousin. Let's see you squirm. That's the test. What does Jesus do? He lays it down. This is what God says. And the Pharisees see that what God united, it's man that is separating. However, in answering this way, Jesus addresses the Pharisees' initial question to the brilliance and the perfection of Jesus' answer is that there is a foundational understanding that the Pharisees did not get that the Bible teaches and these are two things I want to share with you. Number one, there is a sanctity and holiness in marriage. There is a sanctity and holiness in marriage. Why? Because God ordains the couple. There is a sanctity and holiness in marriage because God ordains the couple. Number two, if marriage is grounded in creation order, meaning this was a part of the way God created us, this was before sin happened. Remember, this is Genesis chapter 1 to 3, before sin happened, meaning as the way God created us, we cannot take marriage so lightly as to simply view it as a civil contract. Oh, we're married. We went to uh, City Hall. This is not just back then. This is throughout history. People have been challenging and rebelling against this created order, and we still do it today. If marriage is grounded in created order, a way that God created us, then we cannot take it so lightly as to reduce it to a civil contract. So even if promises were broken, anybody married can say this, promises are always broken. But even if promises were broken, and this is what the Shammai camp and the Hillel camp were debating, there is a gravitas that cannot be ignored. And it was being ignored by those very two camps. And this is why the Pharisees responded this way in verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? All right, I get it. You said Genesis, mm, fine, but... Isn't this still the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 24? They specifically refer now overtly to Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's not just, you know, in an inferential context. It's just specifically saying, what about Deuteronomy chapter 24? And why did Moses, this is what they asked, 
Why did Moses command? Why did he order us to do this, give us a certificate of divorce? But is that what Deuteronomy chapter 24 says? Let me read you the first four verses of Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds, if she, if then, sorry, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, period. That was all one sentence, all four verses, one sentence, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Where is the approval? This is just, if this happens, if this happens, and this happens, this happens, and this happens, you can't marry her again. Never does Moses approve of this action, but simply states it as a matter of fact. The Jewish people had taken this passage away, way out of context, to show divorce is okay for people twirling in the street. Secondly, it's showing people that you cannot divorce people willy-nilly. You can't divorce your wife just because you want to try someone else out and then go back to her. That's what was happening. That's what was happening. That's not how marriage works. Your wife, your spouse is not an object. You can't try it out, return it, and try something new. This is something, however, that the rest of the world had followed. The rest of the world was following this. So it was incredible and revolutionary to the people receiving this law. What I can't do, what the Amorites are doing, or the Amalekites are doing, or the Moabites are doing, these neighbors of mine, they're doing it. I can't do that. And so that's why the Pharisees ask, why did Moses even allow it then? All right, fine. No permission? Then why did he even allow it? This is how Jesus responds. Again, brilliantly, perfectly, and just amazingly. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Because of your hardness of heart. Now, there's a lot to unpack in these two verses, so let me get at it. Because of your hardness of heart. Every time there is a hardness of heart in the Bible, it is referring to rebellion against God. Whether it was by the Israelites or whether it was by Pharaoh, it was rebellion against God. Because of sin, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. How are we to take this? We are to take this with this understanding. Divorce is never, ever morally neutral. Divorce is never morally neutral. It is an evidence of sin, a hardening of the heart. The fundamental attitude of the question was wrong. They were asking the question, which is what we ask, when is it okay to divorce? Give us a list of divorceable reasons. But Jesus addresses the heart. A great note that D.A. Carson says is that Jesus, when speaking about the sin of the people, this is a side note, invariably refers to their sin or your sin, but he never says our sin. I say our sin, that we are sinners, but Jesus never says that. Anyway, but what is this indecency that Moses mentions in Deuteronomy chapter 24? And you could do word studies that indecency is brought up in chapter 23, but I believe Jesus answers it in verse 9. Whoever divorces his wife, 
except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Sexual immorality is translated from the word porneia. It's a Greek word that has a range of meaning, and it is where we get our word for pornography. Sexual immorality or porneia is what defiles a marriage bed. Sexual immorality defiles the marriage bed. This can happen before or after your marriage. From premarital sex to watching pornography to lusting after someone other than your spouse is porneia. This is the grave evil that Jesus is mentioning. It's what we think we want and we rage when someone confronts us on this sin and we laugh at it. There was one time I put up, uh, I put up a, a little handout for people to take. What if I had slept with my girlfriend? What should I do? It was one of the Ask Pastor John's podcast. And I kid you not, here in this room, there are people chuckling. Like, this is 2019, huge. Get with the program. It's like, okay, should I not preach the Bible? Should I just preach what you want to hear? Should I tickle the ears like it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4? Should I just tell you what you want to hear? Is that what Jesus did? This porneia is what Jesus is mentioning, which is the grave evil. We think we know what we want, and when someone tells us otherwise, especially when it comes to sex, and especially when it comes to money, we rage when someone confronts us and say that they are crazy and we want to cut off their heads so we can shut them up. Marriage is so sacred and so holy that to preserve and honor it would take great care and incredible strength. And why are we surprised at this? Because we see in the world, the more sacred, the more delicate the object, don't we put in that much more care? But who can do this? Which one of you has not failed in this regard? Which one of us here can say, I have not failed in this regard of porneia? However, in the Old Testament, there is a punishment for adultery, and it is death. So people understood this. That's harsh, isn't it? That's harsh. Old Testament, past. Let's actually not read the Old Testament. And Jesus is like referring to it all the time. The punishment for adultery is death. People understood this. And when Jesus said this, it must have blew their minds. Like, what? All right, I get it. Don't divorce, but... Pornea? It's like I make jokes and there's 50 instances and innuendos of pornea. Let's, let's be real here. That's what a normal person would say. So that's why we get to verse 10. This is why the disciples say to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Isn't it better not to marry? If this is the precise definition of marriage, and it's that difficult, that sacred, that delicate, and the consequences of messing up something this delicate, this precise, this precious, isn't it better not to marry? I mean, that would be the natural progression of thought, would it not? This is how Jesus responds. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And you're like, what? <laughs> What's eunuchs have to do with anything? Uh, I'm very uncomfortable even saying the word eunuch. But Jesus says it like three times. But, he starts off with but. But meaning Jesus will say something contrary to the disciples' current understanding. But, this is not, you see this progression that you're going, but means there's a change, there's a switch. Not everyone, not everyone will understand this. So this is going to be something difficult to understand, but he's going to give it to you. 
eunuchs, who are eunuchs? You might not know who eunuchs are because we don't use that word often. Eunuchs were men who were impotent or castrated. Jesus was equating people who don't get married to castrated men? Mm, What's going on here? So take it from the top. Jesus is saying that not everyone can receive this saying. This saying cannot be received by everyone. So it's going to be hard for anyone to accept what is this saying. There is a type of eunuch, and he does this first. There is a type of eunuch that are born this way, meaning they didn't have testicles, they didn't have the reproductive organs, and they are eunuchs in this manner. There's another type. There's another type of eunuchs, eunuch who, who were made this way by other men. Many eunuchs would serve a female royal like royalty in palaces, and they would be their guards for obvious reasons. They were less threatening and things of this nature. So they were made eunuchs. They were castrated so they, they could be guards for especially like female royalty. Later in history, we see that some men started castrating themselves so their voice wouldn't drop, so they could stay in boys' choirs. But back then, they weren't doing that. But there's another type of eunuch where Jesus is mentioning. One is you're born this way without the organs. And number two, you are made this way by other men. The last one is where he stops, though, that we should pay attention to. The last one, however, is the most interesting These eunuchs made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, for the sake of the kingdom. Not because through it they would attain the kingdom of heaven, but because of what their specific, what their specific mission entailed. It was needed that they needed to be eunuchs for that specific mission. They did what was needed. That's what Jesus is talking about. The Apostle Paul is a most famous example, but don't forget Jesus also never married. Not that celibacy should be celebrated for its own sake. This is exactly what 1 Timothy chapter 4 is talking about, and this is what Paul is castigating. Paul, who was a eunuch, who didn't get married, Paul is castigating. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some people will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The word of God honors marriage and celebrates it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. But there is a specific calling to some for the express purpose of serving in a special way for the kingdom. That was the third one. So, understanding this, not marrying someone because all men are stupid or all women are crazy is not only wrong, but it's really, really cliche. Marriage is a good thing that God has ordained in his creation for our good and his glory. And one would think that if you say that there are no good men or no good women out there for you, that's the, these are the exact same single people who are probably thinking the same thing about you. You're no good either. We haven't talked about a lot of things regarding marriage today. This is just the beginning. I had spoken about marriage and two times before in Matthew chapter 5 when we talked about this and also about when we talked about Christ and the church in that marriage as well. But we didn't talk a lot, like exhaustively about marriage. And we could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We could go back to uh, Genesis chapter 3. We could continue to go back. But we didn't talk about equally being yoked. We didn't talk about marriage is not your self-fulfillment or your self-actualization. 
we don't have time for that, but there is a great book I would like to recommend. It's called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. There's three now. There's a book, the study guide, and now there's a devotional that you can go. You could go through it with your spouse if you're married. You could go through it with your girlfriend or boyfriend even, or you can even go through it by yourself to be edified. This is my point. Do something to strengthen your marriage. Do something. Don't just sit there. And if you're single, do something to find yourself a spouse. Don't just sit there. You will make mistakes. You will make mistakes. You will fail. Ask my wife, Esther. I fail not just every day. Almost every time I look at her, there's something a little off. I will fail. doesn't mean don't get married, though. Don't get, like, work on me. And what I've realized is in marriage, God does some amazing things. But one of the things that God has shown me is that in marriage, he uses my wife to sanctify me in a way that I would have never been sanctified before. He uses this marriage to sanctify me as a person. You will fail. It doesn't mean don't do it. This is what the disciples were saying. Ah, oh, this is going to fail. This is so delicate. This is crazy, right? So I shouldn't do it at all. Jesus goes, no, not at all. Maybe to one specific group, one specific person, for one specific like mission. But it's a difficult thing. That's what Jesus is saying. In the beginning of the message, I had mentioned that this chapter in Matthew holds two of the most difficult things today to talk about, marriage and money. But right here, sandwiched in these two topics, are three verses for us to see. Then children were brought to him that he may, might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and they went away. Then means it's connected. Then means it's connected, okay? So you might be thinking this is a completely different like, topic, passage, but then means connected. And you might be wondering why is then, how in the world is this connected? And you might think right from the get-go, the first layer, the top layer, the easiest layer is children, marriage, love and marriage, horse and carriage. I get it. Like, it's children, so that's why they're connected. Okay, that's, that's a good start. But the disciples had just heard a very difficult teaching. And when that happens, you can, when you heard this, you can be discouraged. You can even fall into despair. When we're talking about porneia, who hasn't this touched? Who hasn't this affected? Not just for you and your life. But I'm talking about the people around you, your parents, your siblings, your uncles, your aunts, your grandparents. It's touched you in some manner, and you can be discouraged. You can even fall into despair. But there is a small section here that's placed. It's placed here for purpose, and we are to see it's about children. And it's not about all children going to heaven. It's about children coming to Jesus. And Jesus says this, for to such, for to such, meaning to a people like this, to a people like this belong the kingdom of heaven. People with the heart of a child, simple, and yet so deeply profound for us to ponder and meditate. Yes, but also for us to live out. Children were brought by their parents. We know this because the disciples scolded the parents, not the children. Children brought by their parents are shown by Jesus as the models for humility. There is no pretense in children. And when they are brought to Jesus, they just go to Jesus. Hey, go to Jesus, go to Jesus. They just go to Jesus. It's pretense that keeps us back. We have this front and false image that we desperately try to keep when in actuality, we are in dire need of a Savior. Our marriages are failing or has failed, and we've told no one 
nor do people suspect a thing. We think that our marriages are just fine because look at all those other marriages that are crumbling, and we're not as bad, right? We've convinced ourselves that it's better to be single, or we try to hide the fear that we are somehow unlovable or that we're too good for others. It's this pretense that keeps us from going to Jesus with a genuine need to be healed and restored. There may be a fear that Jesus won't bless you in this area because, well, you've been dry for so long. And you might think we should make way for other people that really need Jesus. You convince yourself all the while you need him so desperately in your life right now. Marriage was a gift. And just as you bless and gift children that you love, God is blessing his children with marriage. And you might think, how is it a blessing when all we see right now is hardship and difficulty? How is this a blessing? Marriage and all of God's creation order, but yes, marriage, shows us God's character. He is a God. When we had nothing to offer him, he chose us as his bride. The Bible teaches us that the church is Christ's bride. Christ has claimed us, and the surety is given to us by the down payment of the Holy Spirit in this church, meaning he will never let the church go. He will never divorce us, and his promise is that we will be with him for all eternity. The word of God promises us that nothing will be able to separate us from his love. This life in eternity was bought for us by his blood, a payment that was paid in full by Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate in this place. This is what we sing. This is what we hear. This is what we pronounce, confess, proclaim, pray, receive. The good news of Jesus is that when we corrupted ourselves, we corrupted ourselves, not morally neutral. We corrupted ourselves and we started to corrupt the world we live in. He came to redeem us. We defiled ourselves in sin. And we indeed, indeed, we prostituted ourselves when we were betrothed and promised to another, and it was to God himself. But Jesus comes down, and he lives in a way we should have lived, living in perfect holiness. And this is what is given to us. This perfect holiness is given to us. That perfect life is given to us. And he also received the punishment we should have gotten for the indecency, the writ of divorce that we should have gotten. Jesus takes it and he was crucified on the cross, a death that has left a mark in all of history so that we could finally be free to be married to him. Not only free, but by his spirit and word, we are daily being renewed and sanctified and changed. What was once impossible, like having a good marriage, what was once impossible is now absolutely possible by the power of God. And this is what Jesus does. He takes you and welcomes you and embraces you and blesses you. Are you ready to receive it? He's saying those who have a heart like children are going to be given this. Jesus says it. You take him at his word. He says, I'm going to take you. You are mine. You are my bride. The church is my bride. And we're like, okay, Jesus. And then we go and follow. And we see that as we obey and follow his word, every day we are being renewed. Marriage isn't something that we just see and learn from the civil discourse or what we see in secular society, but we see the beauty of marriage when we see it in the Bible. We see the marriage was pointing to us and to God being together for eternity. This delicate, this amazing, precious process 
God takes over and he goes, you know what? I gave this to you to show you that ultimately it's between me and you. And me and you are going to be together for eternity. This is what Jesus has bought for us. This is the good news for the people of God. And this is what we, what we receive in faith when we profess him to be our Lord and Savior and say, God, I devote my life to you. He's welcoming you. He's like, come. And he blesses. That's what he wants to do. The difficult stuff, the sin that's in your life, don't cover it up with pretense. Go to God. Give it to him. He receives you. Do you see the incredible grace and mercy of our God? The assurance that we have through his son, Jesus Christ, that we will not be rejected? When we go to him, he receives us. What an incredible picture that Jesus is giving us now that we see here by the power of his Holy Spirit and shown to us in the word. All glory be to God. He is worthy to be praised. The assurance that he gives us, nothing can compare to. And we give him the glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us this gift in particular of marriage. But we want to confess to you that one way or another we have messed it up. But Lord, we confess to you asking you for your mercy, for your grace in our lives now. We do not know the way out. We do not know how to figure it out. But we do know this one thing, the thing that you've given us is that we are to go to you just like a child would. And so this is what we do. We don't know all the answers, but we know how to start. And that is by going to you with no pretense. As we come to you, oh God, receive us. Holy Spirit, change us and transform us. Make us more like you. Help us to really understand why this marriage was such a beautiful gift that you give your children. Help us to understand that. Let's take this time to pray. And every one of us, I believe, has some area in their life that they need to give up to God in prayer. It's, it's something. There, there is something. Stop holding that back in your prayers and come to God with it. He is there. Look at him. He said, let the little children come to me. Do you see? He's welcoming you. He's submersible and a gracious God. So go to him now and give him your hearts. And let's pray.